Good afternoon, and welcome to the Center for Automotive Research podcast. I'm Brett Smith, Director of Technology at CAR. Joining me today is David Knight, founder and CEO of Turbine. David describes himself as a serial entrepreneur. His background is in core technologies, including multi-spectral sensing and communication, digital audio, messaging, enterprise software, and distributed systems. David is also an original member of the XPRIZE, the team that literally launched the private space flight industry. So stay tuned. David, welcome to the Car Podcast. How are you doing today? I'm doing great, Brett, and it's great to talk with you. Thanks so much for joining us today. Before we jump into talking about the EV sector and and all of the parts that go into that world, I think it's useful to get a better understanding of Turbine. David, can you take a moment to tell us about the problem Turbine is working on, how the idea has recently changed focus maybe, and uh, finally, the implementation timeline? Sure. Uh, So Turbine, which is spelled with an E, T-E-R-B-I-N-E, we have a group of us who had been involved with a lot of interesting things in the past. Um, My co-founder, CTO, worked on uh, big banking implementations and streaming media systems like HBO Go and HBO Now. And I've worked on things from large-scale email, uh, telecommunications, and at one point, private space flight. But that's another story. We wanted to do something that could be big and really help and help starting with, you know, sort of corporations, government agencies, and eventually making its way to the consumer. So we looked around and kind of thought, well, the Internet of Things looks really interesting. So what can we do there? Well, lots of people are making sensors and devices and big machines. That was happening. A lot of people were building things that... uh, do the communications part happening, satellites happening. Well, what about the data that they generate? And we saw that there were lots and lots of uh, companies, big and small, building platforms that analyze the data and create outcomes. So that's solved too. Well, what isn't solved and could be important in the future? Well, we realized that eventually the machines would start having to share data with each other for various reasons. And that the driving force of this would be the uh, steady progression of Moore's law, which you know says that as time goes forward, processing gets better, faster, cheaper. And, and Moore's Gordon Moore is the co-founder of Intel, and his law, quote unquote, has been amazingly accurate for almost forty years, and it hasn't let up. So the Moore's law now has led to the development of artificial intelligence which is already in your lives if you have a smart speaker or a lot of other things, we realized that artificial intelligence uh, needed a way to talk to all these things. And that led to Turbine. So Turbine is a platform in the software sense that lives in the cloud. And it allows for the exchanging of the data between devices, machines, systems, companies. That is, you know, we call machine-generated data. And we figured out that you can't just share the data. You've got to deal with a whole raft of issues like regulatory compliance, licensing, conveyance of rights, uh, who can do what to whom, which caused us to develop a whole policy engine, and, and monetization, which is the holy grail. You know, Can I make money from the data that my machines are generating? Uh, so now what we've done uh, very recently and uh, 
we're very excited about is with all this technology developed, problem is, you know, where do you deploy this technology initially to really be meaningful? And I will very badly quote Bill Gates, who once said, uh, again, is probably on YouTube, but he said something to the effect of, hey, a platform, and he was talking about Windows back then when it was introduced, he says a, Windows is a platform. And the great thing about a platform is you can use it for anything. But the curse of a platform is you can use it for anything. <laughs> and so badly paraphrasing him, but basically he was right. And so we've built this very sophisticated system and we've tried a lot of things with it, like, um, you know, building energy data and, uh, you know, even the military uh, gave us a small contract to use it for things. And when it really came down to it, we found that a very chronic problem is emerging. It is not chronic yet to everybody, but it, it will be. And that is this wholesale move to electric and eventually autonomous vehicles is a big data management problem. And there's only one company in the whole deal right now that actually has a great handle on the data, and that's Tesla. So when you get into Tesla, and anybody out there with the Tesla will totally relate to this, it the car is continually talking over the air to the Tesla cloud, the Tesla, and it knows everything about, you know, your, where are you on the earth? What's your state of charge? It even figures out your driving habits and are you a lead foot or not. Then their cloud also talks to their proprietary Tesla charging network. So you have a lot of comfort there because, you know, it already knows, hey, you're going to run out of electrons in 100 miles. But given the route you've chosen, we know that there's 10 superchargers by Tesla on this route. And we know if they're available and the money is magically taken care of in the background. The problem is nobody else has anything close to that. None, mm -hmm. none of the OEMs. So we decided to just roll up our sleeves and uh, get in there. So we're just in the process of rolling out a system called Turbine Link. And the idea is that we create that federated experience that Tesla offers, but for all other car makers, all the way up to big rigs, all the way down to micro cars and cities. And we're going to bring in a third component that Tesla doesn't have yet either, which is the power grid, because there's already a lot of concern, especially in California, about the uh, staggering amount of power that these big chargers are going to use. And that's a real concern. Um, it could actually cause brownouts at some point, but because the grid is real time, it's not like a cup of gasoline you can store till you need it. So and we don't have storage at the level of the grid yet. That's not a thing. So we have storage in our homes sometimes, but not in the grid. So with that all blur of information, the idea is to bring the grid into the conversation digitally so that, for example, if you know that 10 big rigs, they're going to use half a megawatt each as they charge. And that's a real number. Uh, and they're approaching the truck stop. Before they get there, we'll be able to tell the grid, you know, maybe you need to allocate more power over here. And uh, because they do, they can do that through what's called load balancing, but without the data, they're not going to do it. So anyway, that that's kind of a long-winded uh, short version of what we're doing. Good stuff. I think as I look through this, there's another player, there are probably many other players in this, and we'll come back to this later maybe, but um, there's also all the government agencies, the local, the state, yes. and the others yes. that, that gather data that that think about it, that, that don't even know what data they need or have. Um, yes. So let's let's come back to all that in a few moments. But I want to go to a different direction with you. You have an, a unique experience uh, starting, a, I guess there's a lot of startups, so it's maybe not that unique, but you have an experience of starting a startup 
in Silicon Valley, but then you, you moved it. You moved it to Las Vegas. I think for the auto industry over the last decade or so, there's been a fascination, borderline obsession with moving to the Silicon Valley and understanding it and then shifting people out of Silicon Valley and back and forth. Why don't you talk about your experience as you started a company, a software-driven company, um, and decided to pick up and go somewhere else? Yes. I actually get asked a lot about that. Usually, uh, it's a two-part question. One is, why'd you move out of Silicon Valley? Part two is, okay, why'd you choose Las Vegas of all places? And I will now answer those as concisely as I can. So the decision to leave Silicon Valley was pretty straightforward. Uh, there's a myth about Silicon Valley, and I've literally spent half my adult life there. And I've had successes there. But everybody says, well, you got to be there because that's where the talent is. The problem is everybody knows that. So you are in direct competition for talent with divisions of very large multinational corporations. Like you said, every major OEM and even some of the startups all have massive innovation centers. Some have hundreds yes. of employees in Silicon and Valley. They, as do so many of the suppliers. It's not just the, they do. the vehicle manufacturers. It's, it's a large group of companies that have moved in there. Yeah, and then multiply that times a way bigger landscape of other industries besides automotive. Um, and then you've got endless startups, ridiculous quantities of startups. And then you've got what's happening at the big universities there. And it just kind of goes on. So you are in competition for a limited talent pool. It's not an infinite talent pool by any means. And then add to that the fact that this has caused it to be very expensive to hire people. And I frankly would say unnecessarily expensive. But what really broke my heart, if you will, is, you know, we're built our company or building our company. You know, we're still building our company. And one day I found out that one of our engineers who was a young person who came out of UC Berkeley, you know, a top tier school, got an exorbitant salary for somebody who just graduated. And but that was what was competitive there. And I found out he was living with two other guys in a one bedroom apartment because they couldn't afford to have their own apartments or even share an apartment with one other person. They had two other people. And I just thought, this is just absurd. So I, I said, that's it. I don't know if it broke my heart or the camel's back, one or the other. So I started looking around in 2018 at the end of it. I said, well, before we grow this company, it's a lot easier to move when you don't have a lot of employees to tow around. Uh, as you know, uh, now, huge companies like Palantir and Hewlett-Packard have moved their seat out of Silicon Valley. They, they still have people there, but they're moving to completely different states and for very similar reasons. So I started looking around and I looked at nine mid-sized cities. One was uh, Ottawa, by the way, because they've <laughs> become a big seat of artificial mm -hmm. intelligence. It, it's amazing how much AI work's going on there. So we looked around. We didn't want to go to another big city. Um, we wanted to be a place where we could get things done. It was more affordable. And frankly, at some point, you know, become a big fish. So Las Vegas wasn't initially on the list at all. We uh, looked, you know, the usual suspects, Austin, Portland, Raleigh, you know. And when it came down to it, I met Chief Information Officer of Vegas, who now calls himself the Chief Innovation Officer. And he really made a big play for why Vegas was going to be a hot tech hub. 
Vegas and Nevada in general is spending a lot of energy on trying to diversify the economy so it's not so dependent on hospitality. And I think the pandemic brought that home like a, a bomb going off. I mean, it you know, the highest unemployment in the world, I believe, was uh, Vegas wow. during that because of their heavy dependence. But it turns out the Vegas Valley has 2.4 million residents. It's much bigger than most people realize. So um, they're, they're the really- in, I thought it was just the strip. That's all I ever saw. <laughs> yeah, right. Well, it's funny. Well, you're, of course, uh, most people only experience the strip and they think, you know, 200,000 people live in the whole place, but it's 10 times that big. Other big industries in the rest of Nevada are mining, things like that, big mining place. But, and then in the North, you've got like the Tesla Gigafactory and so on. With that being said, um, they're really trying to get, you know, technology-based startups and uh, to either come there or be, you know, birthed there. We were, you know, about 20 people. So we moved into a thing called the International Innovation Center, which is part of the innovation district that they've set up to foster startup activity. It's been an incredibly supportive environment. I cannot believe the access that I've had. It's it's nothing like you, you know, could even imagine in California. California is just this big Leviathan thing and, the, you know, it's just dealing with its own inertia. Whereas in Nevada, they're really trying hard to make it happen. And of course, they're not the only state doing that. You know, Texas and, and Arizona and, you uh, mentioned, you know, and so on are all yeah, You mentioned uh, several Utah other states and other locations. And it's it's this interesting dynamic of there's this this center of expertise, clearly, but there's the good and the bad. And we've talked before about Detroit, Southeast Michigan has sort of that center of expertise for automotive engineering. It may not have the sunshine that Vegas has, but it has that center of expertise. And the great news for the companies is if you want good engineering talent, show up in Southeast Michigan. But the bad news is everybody shows up in Southeast Michigan. That means there's this, this pull of opportunity for your people to leave. And uh, it's, it's an interesting dynamic over the years. So, yes. um, Thanks for that. I, again, I, I go back. I thought that was a good discussion or a good point to get to because it is such a dynamic in this industry. It's automatically, boy, we've got to send people to Silicon Valley because that's where all the cool people are. But we get there and we get there. The industry gets there and we lose people there. And um, it's a cost of living thing. And sometimes it's it's not all it's cracked up to be. So, David, I guess this is the, the car podcast. So probably we better get back to cars in a moment. here. But, um, so let's go back to, to kind of think about the turbine platform for a moment, more so in the industry side. And, and I see, I hear frequently people say, oh, you know, th the data is more valuable than the product nowadays. And I push them on it and they tend to struggle to really define where the value is or what the value is. But let's talk, you mentioned two or three stakeholders and I added the fourth of the government. Let's go through those a little bit and, and talk about where some of the data is and some of the interesting things that you might find from these. And I'll start with the EV owners, the drivers, and maybe even connect that to the OEMs. What kind of data do you see that's really proving to be valuable? First of all, there is nobody who has monetized the data from vehicles at scale. Like there's no, there's been a number of attempts. Um, you can look them up rather than me naming them, but there have been yeah. some companies, some of them have done SPACs and gone public in the last year. Yep. 
you just go look at that. <laughs> I love, but I, but everywhere I go, and, yeah. and this is in the manufacturing side, the the in use side, there's the people say, you know, man, there is there is money in them their data. It's more important than the product now. I met a gentleman who used to work for one of the OEMs, and he wrote a book called The Zero Dollar Car. And the interesting, so the, the thesis is that one day the data your car generates would pay for the car. Well, that caught, actually, I read that a long time ago, and I thought, hmm. So more recently, during the pandemic, actually, we had a big German OEM uh, approach us, and they said, can you figure this out? And they've been working with these big consulting firms and everything. And I said, well, sure. I mean, you know, if it helps us have a relationship and it's a subject we seem to be immersed in. So here's the bottom line and it's tough love. The most generous analysis we could come up with, and we down to the level of all the different data outputs that a modern vehicle has, which is a stunning amount, by the way. If you could get them, and right now they do not, spit those all out over a data transceiver, despite despite what people think. They do not, like, let's say a, a high-end car might have 300 outputs that they don't send them over the CAN bus to the data transceiver. And until over-the-air software updates came along, which Tesla started, and now others like Ford are now doing, you had no way to get that data off the car. Now you will be able to get the data and I should mention that there's a really important factor that people forget. There's a cellular bill that goes with this. So the data has to at least cover the cellular bill, if not more. That being said, we, we broke it down in very granular detail. All right. What about the ambient air temperature and barometric pressure sensors that are used to calculate fuel mixtures for the injection system? Like, could you use that data to create micro weather maps and things? So we looked at all sorts of things. And... After a pretty extensive analysis, we realized that it was never going to be even close to paying one month payment for that car, despite everybody wanting it to. But we really had to go to the other side of the equation and say, well, who would pay for this? And what do you think the market would bear? It's, it's the wild, wild west. So there's a lot of, uh, you know, pardon the term, but it's called swag, scientific wild ass guessing. So <laughs> we had to do a lot of that, but we had some smart people looking at it. Then last year, uh, no, they went off with that to ponder on it. Uh, we've now had other OEMs say, could you do that for us? We have. And probably the most interesting was last summer, uh, a very, very large commercial fleet operator that everybody knows came to us and said, hey, we'd like you to do that for us. And their question was really interesting. They said, what if we put sensors on our vehicles that had nothing to do with being a vehicle, they had to do with the fact that they're covering the landscape all the time, kind of like really low flying satellites. And what if you put things like LIDAR and radar and not for navigation, but to capture data. So that was really fascinating. I think we had 70 different sensor types we analyzed for that study. It does add up to real money at some point. And we, we think we found some really good use cases, but the real answer you know, that you're looking for is, uh, is it have any hope of paying for the car? I, I would say not anytime soon, probably not ever, probably not ever, but that's okay. As long as you don't make that your business model. Yeah, there's, there, there's, as you said, there, there's a ton of data out there. Some of it's accessible. Some of it is not, some of it's useful. Some of it's not. And parceling through it is a challenge when you, when you talk yeah. with the utility companies, 
what's the angle there? How do the utility companies hey, you mentioned earlier some of the charging and, and peak charging opportunities? What's data that you see them looking for that makes it interesting? Yeah, well, what we're pursuing now, we did you know really go down uh, almost a rabbit hole there for a long time on you know could we just make money selling data generated by people's machines? And in the end, we said, well, maybe someday at grand scale, but not this week. So what can we do now? And we discovered, if you will, this important area of how to make the charging experience, uh, you know, pleasurable, if you will, and efficient, at least approximating Tesla and then even exceeding their experience. That brought us to the utilities. So the utilities are about to need to know what's happening with EV chargers. It's not going to be enough to just talk to the several big charging networks that each country has. We have there, there are already multiple charging networks in each major country you can think of. That doesn't represent, if you do a, you know, it's called a Pareto analysis, like the 80-20 rule. The vast majority of chargers in the world do not belong to one of these networks. They're, you know, some hotel has three or some pizza place or, you know, a coffee shop or whatever, a mall, an office building, your house. So those aren't on these networks. So we're trying to figure out, you know, can we federate all of that into a big, what they call a data backplane? And then once you know that, and you also know what's happening with the cars themselves, cars, trucks, et cetera, that is useful to the grid because each independent entity, uh, which is uh, either public, private, or public, private in terms of who owns and operates utilities, couldn't you take that? and give that data to them as sort of a preemptive strike and say, you know, in five minutes, 10 minutes, an hour, whatever we have visibility on, you're going to need to allocate more power over there. The other thing that they need to know, which, and, and you know, think about how hard it would be for them to get that. You know, you're not going to have 3,300 power utilities in North America. That's the actual number. Yeah. Stunning. And, and, and David, so many people think about the utilities as their utility. I'm used to DTE. Yes. And so, you know, it's, it's a one, it's a singular thing, but having worked in this space uh, specifically with utilities since 2007, 3,000 different ones. And all of them, yeah. many of them operate differently. Many of them, you know, com communicate, but it's a, it's a complex world. Yeah, it is very much complex. And let's take an aside since you brought that up that, you know, there is no grid, right? There's decent confederation of a lot of things, but they don't have any one owner. And then, of course... Very famously now, as of two years ago, Texas isn't even part of it. <laughs> They've got their own planet. So then you look at uh, the fact that they are not all public or they are not all private, and some are even public-private. And it's, it's a tough universe. And they don't really care about what's happening two states over, other than the fact that if they need to pull power from two states over, they, they have a way to do that. So the other thing, as time goes forward, they're going to need to know what loads are about to hit them because these are just gigantic loads. You know, let's say there's a hundred charging stations at a brand new football stadium and you know, that holds 60,000 people. If you know, wow, there's all these EVs. It turns out all of those are going to get used during the game. And each one is using a quarter of a megawatt, right? So wow. Right. That's 25 megawatts that it weren't being drawn before. So that would be helpful. With that being said, um, the other side of the equation, literally, 
is it's now possible for people with solar panels to put power back into the grid in many places. Um, sometimes uh, the regulations haven't caught up with it. If you're listening to this from certain states, you say, no, 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 they don't let us do that. But it, it's all going to happen eventually. And it's it's already happening, I'd say, in the majority of places in and all over Europe, by the way, too. That is a problem because now they have to manage all of that sort of, I'll call it two-way traffic. It's two-way electron traffic. And now we're about to see a bunch of these big battery EVs, which is amusingly becoming a term now, the big battery EVs. And if you look at the F-150 Lightning, uh, the new Silverado EV, uh, you can actually run your house from these things. The power jack is already in the truck. You just need the adapter. If you have solar panels and that whole thing already running at your house, by the way, you don't need to spend five grand necessarily and usually don't to connect your truck to it. You already you already put that stuff in. But if you don't have solar panels, it is going to cost you, you know, five grand, maybe then some, depending on what your electrician charges you to put that in your garage. Here's the problem with that. You're now going to have two-way electron traffic, you know, going in and out of the grid. And it's the, the grid, again, you know, the power utility could really, really be helpful to know what's coming at it, right? And I, I should mention that uh, recently, uh, Mary Barra, the, you know, the head of GM, in a press conference, she actually mentioned that, that the new Silverado EV, uh, you know, you'll be able to put power back in the grid and maybe even make money from the power. You know, Ford, Ford has mentioned it with the lightning. It's it's become yeah. a big thing very quickly. It's something we've talked about for 25 years, but it's yes. happening now. It is um, happening. We are we are running out of time here. I want to get to one more of the stakeholders for a minute, and then we got to close it up. Um, you had mentioned the, the the buyers, the utilities, and the charging networks. I brought up one that is always challenging and fascinating is the local and, and state governments. Yes. That's, there are more of those than there are utilities too. There's a lot of oh, different, yes. uh, and those folks, some of them are remarkably knowledgeable in this space, remarkably knowledgeable, while others may not be quite as informed. As you've worked with them, what have you found interesting in, in working with the, the locals and the states? So we are working in what I call our front yard, Las Vegas. Mm -hmm. And I, I really, no kidding, can't say enough about how welcoming they are of new ideas. I mean, this is the place that tears itself down and rebuilds itself every 20 or 30 years. So the mentality is let's try new things if it's going to create benefit. And uh, so we're doing a big proof of concept for the whole idea of federating chargers, charging networks, you know, and the utility, the main utility here is, you know, called Nevada Energy, belongs to Warren Buffett. And we're also bringing in the city, the county and the state. It's a pretty good microcosm. There's a, there's a saying in the marketing world that, you know, you can you can just take the pulse of Vegas and kind of figure out what's happening in the nation. And that's because 2.4 million people live here, but 40 to 50 million people, at least in a non-pandemic year, come here. And I should tell you, it's very interesting. The uh, stats are that 40% of the people who come to Las Vegas for what they call recreational reasons, so meaning not for a convention, come in their car from Southern California, Arizona, mostly Southern California. Yeah. And of course, California is leading the way in EV adoption. So you have a lot of EVs showing up here. I've seen lines at the Tesla superchargers. 
So we've had a pretty good success in bringing the local government into this here. I think, you know, we have to educate each other uh, about what, what's needed. But they all, they all understand that this is an area they have to really get their hands around. And as it goes to autonomous vehicles, which is going to be the follow-on thing from EVs, we are going to see so many regulatory changes and things that are going to have to shift to accommodate. Hey, David, we need to wrap it up here. We've hit our time limit. So so first, thank you so much for joining. Great stuff. Good discussion. Um, any closing thoughts on, on big data and, and the future of trying to figure out how to make money off it? I really believe that the data being generated by vehicles and the data consumed by vehicles uh, has intrinsic value. I do believe that you know by solving these big problems like how to get all the EVs, talking to all the charging systems and the government and the utilities is a great way to introduce how data is going to be transceived and in a, in a safe, secure, and controllable way. That's what we're trying to do. As we go into more maturity of all of this, I think we're going to see new users come into play that are people like you know hedge funds, insurance companies, et cetera. And they're the ones that are really going to pay for the data because they have no other way to get at it. And I think they're going to find more and more value as they, uh, you know, as this whole thing expands. David Knight, founder and CEO of Turbine. Thank you so much for your time. And those that listened, appreciate it. Have a great day. Thank you.